What do we mean when we talk about the perversions? Always in inverted commas, of course. Who gets to decide what's normal, what's abnormal? The concept of perversion is fundamentally a medical one, although, of course, it is grounded in theological notions of sin, evil, and immorality. Now, it emerged from the late 19th century, from the mid-19th century, with the rise of psychiatry, or what they used to call alienism. The sexual perversions were linked to debates about the medicalization of deviance, that is, the practice of incorporating an expanding range of marginalized behaviors into a medical paradigm. And in the period spanning the 1870s to the present, sexual perversions have been classified under many different names, including sexual abnormalities, sexual deviations, and paraphilias. Paraphilia, para, of course, meaning deviation, philia, meaning attraction. This shift that we can see from perversion to paraphilia was first made by psychoanalyst um, Wilhelm Steckel in 1909 on the grounds he believed that it was a less judgmental term. He also believed that this change in language would distance the discipline of psychiatry from religious precepts and moralism, thus cementing its claims to the status of being a science. Well, in the modern period, the most influential manual on sexual perversions is this one, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, the so-called Bible of the American Psychiatric Association. Now, I think it's really difficult to overstate the importance of the DSM, which was published in different editions from 1952 until the latest version, which was 2013. And it continues to be of central importance in contemporary psychiatry. Not only is the manual the obligatory authority on psychiatric discourse in the US, it is also widely consulted in many other countries and is pivotal in, pivotal in determining the diagnostic categories adopted by the International uh, Classification of Disease, the ICD, which is used in over 140 member countries of the World Health Organization. So, when, in other words, when the DSM designates an act or identity as a perversion, not only medical practitioners, GPs to psychiatrists, but not only do they listen, but also so do jurists and juries, insurance companies, newspaper editors, those labeled perverse, and of course those who seek to distance themselves from um, that label. So what I want to look at today is to ask sort of, well, what criteria did influential psychiatrists and their associates apply when designating a specific sexual activities or identities as forms of psychiatric deviance? 
what was the role of law, ideology, politics, morality, and medicine in labeling something perverse. Um, after all, there's actually no clear line between sexual perversions and sexual offenses. As two psychiatrists observed in the 1970s, not all sexual behaviors labeled abnormal within psychiatry were illegal. I mean, an example of would be um, masochism, for example. It's not a crime. Conversely, not all illegal behaviors were regarded as psychiatrically abnormal. For example, in many US states when these psychiatrists were writing, both homosexuality and fellatio, even within marriage, were um, prohibited by law. Fundamentally, what is a mental illness? Now these big questions, if you like, are linked to broader debates within the history of psychiatry about societal constructions of mental abnormality. Even the authors of the various editions of the DSM were uncertain about how they were supposed to distinguish normal from abnormal. As late as its 2000 edition, they admitted that Quote, no definition adequately specifies precise boundaries for the concept of mental disorder. They were nevertheless <laughs> required to make some haphazard guesses about what they believed should be called abnormal. Now, the most, I think, in my view, the most influential early critique of this process was Thomas Sasser's 1961 classic, The Myth of Mental Illness. It's really stood the, the, the test of time, this book, for all its, its, its problems. He argued that mental disorders were not scientific entities. They were value judgments containing strong political convictions um, and driven by the need to enforce societal norms. Now, his insights have been echoed and elaborated on by dozens of other scholars working in the field, such as um, Irving Goffman and Thomas Sheff. Um, it was also, of course, most of us here will, will know, it's also one of the central arguments made by uh, Michel Foucault in The History of Sexuality and in Introduction, 1976, when he insisted that the sciences of sex, as they emerged in the late 19th and 20th centuries, were not concerned with uncovering any um, truth about sex or sexuality, but with regulating and normalizing certain norms um, about heterosexuality, monogamy, and the nuclear family. Now, given the feverish excitability of the human imagination and desire, it is, of course, not surprising then that the list of sexual so-called perversions seem to go on and on and on. And they include exceptionally different acts and identities. For example, masturbation, oral sex, anal intercourse, female frigidity, nymphomania, and other arousal dis disorders have been historically sites, major sites of anxieties leading to stigmatization, 
ostracization, incarceration in asylums or prisons, and harmful treatments. Elaborate theories had to be developed to lend, if you like, scientific weight to what were moral, ideological, and political labels. By the mid-1950s, the DSM's perversions included acts and identities as different as homosexuality, exhibitionism, transvestism, paedophilia, fetishism, and sexual sadism. And today, I want to focus on just three of these, and the ones I've chosen are exhibitionism, sadism, and um, homosexuality. Now, these are extremely different classifications, but they think I've chosen them because I think they illustrate in turn the role of psychiatry in relation to policing, exhibitionism, in relation to masculinity, sadism, and in relation to morality, homosexuality. So first, exhibitionism. Well, exhibitionism, of course, was not always considered a perversion. Prior to the 19th century, it was simply a criminal activity. The act of exposing one's genitals to a non-consenting stranger was a crime. It was punishable under a vast array of laws, including the common law offence of outraging public decency, vagrancy regulations, and public order decrees prescribing acts that caused an obstruction, annoyance, or danger to the residents or passengers, as the UK's Town Police Clauses Act of um, 1847 put it. Under 19th century legislation, in other words, men who exposed their genitals were placed in the same category as men who begged, slept in public places, or solicited prostitutes. The law assumed that men who exposed their genitals were drifters, they were vagabonds. Indeed, Prior to the 1870s, the category of exhibitionist, the exhibitionist, did not even exist. The term um, was first used by Charles Le Secure in 1877. Um, and in the English language, it first appeared, the word exhibitionist first appeared in print in Charles Gilbert Chaddock's 1893 translation of Richard von Krapp-Ebbing's Psychopathia Sexualis, of which I'm going to say more, more later. So in other words, what we've got here is this shift in language from the legal term of indecent exposure to the psychiatric one of exhibitionism. And this represented a major change, a major shift from a sort of punitive response to the act of exposure to a medical response that focused more on the identity of the person doing the exposing, the exhibitionist. The person who exposed his genitals became a persona, if you like, in much the same way that Foucault conceptualized the creation of the homosexual. 
in the course of the 19th century, Foucault um, contended, the homosexual, and I'm arguing the exhibitionist as well, became a personage, a past, a cast, case history, and a childhood, in addition to being a type of life, a life form, a morphology. Nothing that went into his total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. So it was in the 19th century then that medical and psychiatric literatures first began propagating the idea that people who engaged in exhibitionist practices were not simply um, expressing their tastes, but were a discrete category of human. So once the idea that um, exhibitionists were mad, psychiatric ill, suffering from perversion, not bad, not simply vagrants, began, once this began gaining popular public support, the precise nature of their pathology became the main issue. So Shaddock, the man we, we mentioned earlier who translated Kraft Ebbing into English, insisted that the act was so obviously silly and purposeless that it had to be the result of anomalous mental factors. And he was naturally influenced, uh, um, there's Shaddock there, he was naturally influenced by Kraft Ebbing's view that exhibitionists were in fact degenerates. In the early years of the 20th century, however, a new generation of psychiatrists um, were coming up and they were arguing that exhibitionists were not in fact degenerates. They were suffering from an obsessive or a compulsive disorder. Such impulsive and obsessional behaviors made exhibitionists dangerous rather than merely silly. For example, a speaker at the International Medical Congress 1900 lamented the irresistibility of the need, the anguish struggle between the morbid pleasure which commended it and the consciousness which appreciated and resisted it. Well, other psychiatrists um, believed or started arguing that exhibitionists might be suffering from a compulsive pathology they called satyrisis, a male form, if you like, of nymphomania. For physicians such as the author of Insanity in Medico-Legal Bearings in 1900, the victim of satyrisis suffered from a compulsive urge to expose his person in public, even if it ruined his reputation as a clergyman or dignified banker. Okay, so this medicalization of the sex, of a sex act, the exposure of genitals to non-consenting person, was important in cementing the psychiatric diagnosis of exhibitionism. It provided, if you like, a rationale for the interventions of science into the lives of men previously characterized as nothing more than wastrels and lowlife. They could now be clergymen or bankers. Psychiatrists 
however, did not only distinguish between the vagrant, degenerate, and morally irresponsible, and the med medically ill. They also believed that it was important to distinguish between, as one um, psychiatrist put it, between the voluntarily vulgar and depraved sensualist, typically classed as aristocratic or upper middle class, um, who possessed a sense of sexual entitlement from, distinguishing them from ordinary, middle class sufferers whose involuntary exposure, propensities and acts masked a naturally uh, continent and virtuous life. So to make these distinctions, psychiatrists had to develop these really complicated um, nosologies, elaborate classification systems, which claimed to be able to um, evaluate the health of a person's inner mental world through an examination of outer signs, many of which, no surprise here, many of which were related to class, hierarchies, racist profiling, and religion. Um, in other words, there's a huge talk I could give about Jewish versus Christian in these, in these debates. Let me just, just to give you a sample of you know, what we're actually talking about here, let me give you just one example, um, very prominent example. In the early years of the 20th century, um, psychiatrist C.H. Hughes published an article in the very prestigious journal entitled The Alienist, the term for psychiatrist back then, The Alienist and Neurologist, really important journal. In it, he narrated the tribulations of Charles Cannon, 60-year-old widower, prominent local lawyer, active member of the Trinity Protestant Episcopal Church. Just remember that, Episcopal Church. Cannon's reputation had been destroyed when 17 young girls, aged between 8 and 14 years, accused him of exposing um, his penis. He was found guilty. Hughes, however, well, he brooded in extensive detail over this case. He brooded about whether it was even possible for a prominent figure in the community to be guilty of such a debased crime. He even speculated on whether Cannon was a victim of female morbid eroticism, have I got it up there, yes, whether he was a victim of female morbid eroticism, which is um, a pathological state that predisposed women to make false accusations. Even if the exposed, so in other words, he's accusing, he's saying the women, are the, the girls are the problem. Um, even if the exposure had taken place, Hughes claimed that Cannon's whiteness, economic respectability, religiosity, and conformity to dominant middle-aged masculine norms were sufficient to authenticate his moral innocence. Hughes was left with only one explanation for Cannon's behavior, delusions arising out of the erotopathic perversions of neuro, neuron disease degeneration. 
So in this way, of course, what we see happening here is sympathy could be extended to the exhibitionist rather than the 17 young girls and social, gender, racial hierarchies um, retained. I think this case also reveals the underlying ideology of this perversion within these texts. In other words, middle-class white men were most easily slotted into the role of exhibitionists. Their impoverished black counterparts continued to be classed as indecent exposures, exposers and imprisoned under vagrancy and indecency laws. The exhibitionist label was also a rather convenient um, diagnosis for the police and jurists. The prognosis of cure of these men was admittedly um, poor. Even the most distinguished psychiatrists um, admitted that they were a lot more considerably, a lot more considerably more skilled at diagnosing perversions than in uh, treating them. Courts, however, were much more likely to refer exhibitionists to psychiatric services than, um, than they were to other sex offenders. Indecent exposure of male genitalia was consistent with this broader norms of masculinity. Exhibitionism was construed as an active male violation of the passive visual field of women and children. I think it's also notable that the um, primacy given to the male sex organ by male exhibitionists was mirrored in much of the work um, of, or much of the work by male psychiatrists and sexologists. For example, 1950, Nathan King Rickles published what was to become actually the key textbook on exhibitionism of the period. It was a psychoanalytical text that viewed exhibitionism as arising from unconscious infantile conflicts, especially vis-a-vis -vis, um, mothers. But Rick, what interests me in this is his book is that he infused exhibitionists with what he called a aura of mysticism and magical significance. He believed that exhibitionists were unconsciously telling their victims that this, the penis, this is divine. You may look and adore, but you may not touch. Now, Anthony Storm, author of another very influential book called Sexual Deviations, 1964, um, was a little bit more unkind claiming that the typical exhibitionist believed that he possessed large, impressive genitals, and it was natural for him to think that women would be impressed by them too. Regrettably, and I love this, regrettably, Storr continued, women tended to treat the penis as an organ for use rather than for aesthetic admiration, and so were seldom as impressed by its magnificence as men would like them to be. So both Rickles' exaggerated sort of divine penis story and Storr's more blunt realist um, narrative did agree, however, that exhibitionism was a sad perversion. The man who, in Rickles' words, symbolically shakes his penis at women as he might shake his fist, particularly at symbolically dominated mothers and wives, must always remain alert to possible encroachments into his power, humiliation, 
always lay in wait. So, discussions about the perversion of exhibitionism were infused with gendered class and raced views about power, humiliation, and the um, sexed body. These views were taken to an extreme when we turn to sexual sadism, the classic sexual perversion. In the history of psychiatry, the frequency with which this perversion is discussed is second only to homosexuality. While debates about exhibitionism made distinctions between rogues and vagabonds, inadequate masculinity requiring punishment, and pervert, per perverts, insecure masculinity requiring discipline, the sadist designation, I think, reveals really disturbing assumptions about the construction of normal and abnormal male sexuality. In Philosophy of the Bedroom, 1795, the Marquis de Sade reflected on a sexual perversion that 40 years later was going to be named after him, sadism. From its conception, sadism was naturalized as integral to what it means to be a man, to masculinity. Cruelty, Sade claimed, is very far from being a vice because it is the first sentiment that nature injects in us all. The infant breaks his toy, bites his nurse's breast, and strangles his canary long before he is able to reason. Now, while initially insisting that extreme aggression directed, sexual aggression directed towards other people is natural to us all, of course, Saad goes on to say that it's actually masculine. Sexual violence is wielded by the masculine half of humanity. In his words, the debility to which nature condemned women, by which he means our weakness, the debility to which nature condemned women, incontestably proves that the design is for man, who not only enjoys his strength, but exercises it in all the violent forms that suit him best by means of tortures, if he be so inclined or worse. Saad's explosive depictions of sexualized torture in texts such as Justine, Philosophy in the Bedroom, Juliette, became an ism for the first time in the French text, uh, the Dictionary Universal, the French language, 1835. However, the person most responsible for popularizing this um, perversion was 46-year-old Austro-German forensic psychiatrist Richard von Kraft Ebbing, of whom we have already heard. His book, Psychopathia Sexualis, um, 1886 English, introduced and disseminated words for the major so-called perversions. In other words, he was the one who invented exhibitionism, sadism, homosexuality. Between its publication and Kraft Ebbing's death in 1904, Psychopathia Sexualis went through 12 editions, the latest edition published in 2011. And the book was not only read by psychiatrists and lawyers, but also by the lay public. Kraft Ebbing had not intended to popularize the term sadism. He was writing for an elite audience. Whenever he gets anywhere near anything gruesome or sexual or vulgar or whatever, he switches to Latin. Um, even so, 
reviewers tended to be disgusted. 1893, the British Medical Journal reviewed the book with great reluctance, questioning whether it needed to have been translated in the first place. They noted that the entire text should have been rendered in Latin, and thus wielded in the decent obscurity of a dead language. Admittedly, they conclude, conceded, many morally disgusting subjects have to be studied by the doctor and by the jurist, but the less such subjects are brought before the public, the better. So what was it so disgusting that editors of, of the British Medical Journal uh, found? In part, it was because, of course, the book, as we'll come to later, also referred to homosexuality in great detail. But Krafft-Ebbing also broke this really formidable taboo in, in that he gave voice to people who reveled in these behaviours, including sadists. In his numerous case studies, these perverts could be heard accounting for their deeds, albeit in a language made available by Krafft-Ebbing himself. For Krafft-Ebbing, um, sadists were degenerates, psychopathic individuals, people whose defect of moral feeling allowed normal, masculine, heterosexual cruelty to become unbounded. Krafft-Ebbing illustrated the range of degenerative soils that led to this perversion. Sadists had mothers who suffered from mania menstrualis periodica menstrual Armenia, or were hysterical, neurasthenic. Their fathers, uncles, near relatives were insane, drunkards, syphilitic, practiced onism, that is, they masturbated, um, or experienced homicidal impulses. Sadis also, according to him, exhibited Lombroso-like physical signs of degeneration such as being undersized and stooped, having asymmetrical faces, and as another prominent, prominent psychiatrist put it at the time, they suffered from speech impediments, including finding it impossible to say Methodist Episcopal. By the way, I have practiced that because I just thought, oh my goodness, with a speech impediment like mine, I'm sure to, to pronounce it wrongly. <laughs> impossible to say Methodist Episcopal. Episcopal. Indeed, Krafft-Ebbing and his followers described sadists in much the same way that they described exhibitionists and homosexuals. Crucially, however, Krafft-Ebbing regarded sadism as an extension of normal male sexuality. As he put it, sadism is nothing more than an excessive and monstrous pathological intensification of phenomena which accompanied the psychical vita sexualis, particularly in males. For him, Physiological conditions explained why monstrous sadistic acts are more common in men than in women. He explained that, um, and these things were repeated by dozens of other psychiatrists of the period. He explained that in the intercourse of the sexes, the active or aggressive role belongs to man. Women remains passive, defensive. It affords a man great pleasure to win a woman, to conquer her. Under normal conditions, a man meets obstacles which it is his part to overcome and for which nature has given him an aggressive character. This aggressive character, however, under conditions, may likewise be excessively developed and express itself in an impulse to seduce absolutely the object of desire, even to destroy 
or kill it. In statistical sexual acts, this normal heteromasculine quadrant of passion overheated, exploded. There were highly racist as well as classed aspects to Kraft Ebbing's notion of the perversion, since he believed that cruelty was natural to the primitive man, while compassion was a secondary manifestation and acquired late in the ascent of mankind. Now, there are two, I think, important components to um, these early psychiatric debates about um, this perversion. First, sadists were male. Um, the most common statement was that while men possessed an inborn, sa um, inborn sadism, women had an inborn masochism. Secondly, it was an excess of male heterosexuality. Psychiatric books right up until the, 19, sorry, the 2010s listed sadism under headings such as heterosexual abno, anom, anomalies. I should have practiced that one. It's worse than um, anom anomalies. It was routinely pointed out that non-human males also courted the, um, uh, the female of their species aggressively. In Havelock Alice's Studies in the Psychology of Sex, 1903, he claimed that pain and sexual excitation were typical in animal courtships. So it was hardly surprising to find that it in human male heterosexual heterosexuality. Now, when the British Medical Journal originally reviewed psychopathic sexualists, the reviewer concluded by admonishing physicians to ensure that the book was not left around for general reading. However, within 20 years of its publication, English translation, sadism had become an everyday word. By the Second World War and by the Second World War, the perversion called sadism had in fact drifted free from its psychiatric uh, moorings in Kraft Ebbing and what was previously called, very problematically, lust murder. Suddenly the concept started to be used to refer to everything from the innate sadism of modern comic books, television programs, films, to vivisectionists, teachers who resorted to corporal punishment, schoolyard bullies, men who enjoyed hunting, warmongers, even nurses. The mid-20th century saw a shift from the status being regarded as a degenerate um, to him being portrayed as ex ex exhibiting superficial, white-skinned, middle-class ordinariness that masked a vicious nature. In a world reeling from the Second World War, they were the perennial Nazis. Even within psychiatric circles, sadism was being applied to a huge range of activities. As a diagnostic category, the label sadism was applied to serial rapists, homosexuals, exhibitionists, masturbators. Psychiatrists used the concept to refer to everything from men with a compulsive habit to prowl the streets looking for vulnerable women to adolescent boys ashamed about spontaneous nocturnal emissions. Indeed, at the same time that the British newspapers were headlining the horrific crimes of... In, 1946, of the sadist Neville Heath, a psychiatrist writing under the banner A Medical View of Sadism, bundled 
Heath's atrocities in the same category as bullies who take pleasure in teasing little girls. Importantly, the psychiatric designation of sadism was increasingly applied to consensual S&M practices, not just non-consensual acts of cruelty. A typical example can be seen in James Kernan's influential article entitled Responsibility in Active Algophily, that is the sexual enjoyment of inflicting or experiencing pain, published in Medicine 1903. This article confused consensual sadomasochism with non-consensual violent rape. The lover who desires to give pleasure was made equivalent to the vicious rape murderer. And this confusion continues to this day, as in the character of Christian in Fifty Shades of Grey, the sexual sadist becoming a cultural icon. This confusion of tongues matters because eliding the difference between delight and distress or between consensual pain and non-consensual suffering defines the human encounter in terms of only one of the participants, the aggressors. By minimizing the harms of sexual cruelty, it's as bad as teasing little girls, um, it normalizes it. Indeed, early psychiatrists regarded sadism as simply part of a, con uh, con uh, part of a continuum of male sexuality. Now, in contrast to this horrible story here, in contrast to exhibitionism, in contrast to sexual sadism, homosexuality is an example of the way people labeled perverse have effectively challenged their status in society. From the 19th century, homosexuality had been labeled perversion, before that, sin evil, believing, believing, to be, uh, believing it to be the result, for example, and this is a huge other lecture, example, uh, result of some external damage harmful mothering, inadequate fathering, intrauterinal hormonal exposure, or an internal defect, intergenerational degeneration, developmental immaturity, and so on. In the first DSM, published 1952, homosexuality was classed amongst the sociopathic personality disorders. 1968, DSM-2, it was reclassified within the diagnostic category of sexual deviations. These diagnostic terms were largely based on psychoanalytical theories of sexual development. In a typical statement from the early 20th century, psychiatrist Carl Menninger argued that homosexuality was evidence of an impairment or immature sexuality due to either arrested psychological development or regression. Such views were used to justify stigmatization, the use of psychopharmaceuticals, electroconvulsive shock treatments, lobotomy, damaging psychoanalysis, and aversion therapy. Okay, this is not the time or place to rehearse the well-known um, history of psychiatric ideas about the etiology and treatment of homosexuality. This job has been done extremely well by many dozen historians. Um, rather, 
I want to suggest that, for, for the sake of this talk, that it's interesting to study historical arguments about whether homosexuality is a perversion for what it tells us about successful resistance to pathologization. Now, some opposition to classifying homosexuality as a perversion emerged from scientific research. Particularly important were the works of Alfred Kingsley and Evelyn Hooker. In Kingsley's survey of the sexual habits of 12,000 American men, published as Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, 1948, at least 37% um, admitted to having a homosexual experience. This is 1948. 37% admitted to having homosexual experience and, as an adult, and one-fifth have had had just as many homosexual experiences as heterosexual ones. Hooker's research was equally important. She revealed that there's, in fact, no discernible psychiatric um, differences between heterosexual and homosexual men. It was no coincidence that the move to depathologize homosexuality took place as the APA, the American Psychological Association, um, American Psychiatric Association, moved away from psychoanalytical perspectives and towards a more biopsychiatric model of psychiatric disorders. And a shift, this shift took place between um, D, uh, DSM-2 and DSM-3, which is 1980. However, much more significant resistance to homosexuality as a sexual perversion emerged from within lesbian and gay communities. An early example includes the Mattachine Society, 1955, they published the Mattachine Review, which used the research of Hooker to argue against homosexuality as a mental illness. From the 1960s, gay mobilization grew dramatically, and by the end of that decade, the Gay Liberation Front and the Stonewall Riots saw protests against pathologization taking a more radical turn. Crucially, these gay activists insisted not only that they were not mentally ill, but they celebrated their sexuality. In other words, and this is really important in terms of the DSM, um, they, um, were no, they were by no means distressed or impaired in social function. Were, these were the terms that many psychiatrists, including Robert Spitzer, who chaired the task force that produced DSM-3, uh, believed were crucial in constituting a disorder, perversion. And also, they claimed that they, the gay community claimed that they possessed knowledge, lay knowledges that trumped so-called scientific expertise. So, gay communities and their supporters threw their energies into the fight to be regarded as normal and therefore entitled to the same rights, the same responsibilities as other, as heterosexuals. And two very different models, though, emerged. Some gay psychiatrists and psychologists allied themselves with the psychiatric establishment, seeking to provide scientific rejoiners to homophobic science. They argued that labeling homosexuality a perversion was a scientific error. 
the reform of which would strengthen the power of psychiatry. One unfortunate consequence um, of this, for this bid for respectability, was the distancing of themselves from other gender non-conformist communities. Uh, for example, during a BBC broadcast 1966, Barbara Gittings reassured listeners that there is no evidence that homosexuals wish to cross-dress any more than heterosexuals do. In fact, more transvestites are heterosexual and they even have their own organisations. Transvestism is, fundament is a fundamentally different phenomenon from homosexuality and must not be confused with or correlated with homosexuality. So in other words, homosexuals were on the normal spectrum of human sexuality. Trans people, they were the ones who were perverse. It was, this was a far cry, however, from the politics of inclusion evoked within the more radical section of the movement. Many of these um, activists were profoundly influenced by anti-psychiatry. In 1970 and 1971, these activists used guerrilla performative tactics to disrupt APA conferences. They grabbed microphones, they insisted on their voices being heard. One gay activist entitled a paper he presented at a psychiatric conference, Stop it, you're making me sick. Gay activists were also immersed in wider progressive politics. For example, the Chicago Gay Liberation Front made a powerful statement at the Black Panthers Revolutionary People's Constitutional Convention in the 1970s. They maintained that. The American medical profession is irrelevant to the needs of oppressed people. Because psychiatrists emphasize adjustment and conformity rather than liberation, because they tell us to become good citizens rather than good revolutionaries, because they favor individual solutions rather than social change, we recognize that they are not the helpers of homosexuals or any oppressed people, but serve as our oppressors. So classic sort of anti-psychiatry kind of uh, rhetoric there, an anti-racist rhetoric. And these radicals were effective. 1973, a vote of the 10,000 members of the APA decided by a majority of 58% to accept the decision of the APA Board of Trustees to remove homosexuality from the manual of psychiatric diagnoses. Was this a revolutionary moment? Well. Yep, many thought so. Yep, absolutely. Um, but even as the activists were celebrating, um, one gay student sneered, hmm, utopia at last. The APA has waved its magic wand and cleansed us, oh joy, of our dark and horrible sickness. Unfortunately, the APA's decision did not mean that homosexuality was actually removed entirely from DSM diagnostic categories. After all, the change had nothing to do with so-called scientific evidence. It was caused by a vote of members' beliefs, exposing the political, ideological, moralistic undergirding of psychiatric naming of perversions. Homosexuality continued to be seen as psychiatrically abnormal. In an official statement, 1973, the APA maintained that 
No doubt, homosexual activist groups will claim that psychiatry has at last, at least, recognized that homosexuality is as normal as homosexuality. They will be wrong. In removing homosexuality per se from the nomenclature, we are only recognizing that by itself, homosexuality does not meet the criteria for being considered a psychiatric disorder. We will in no way be aligning ourselves with any particular viewpoint regarding the etiology or desirability of homosexual behavior. A new diagnosis was actually introduced at the same time called sexual orientation disturbance. And then 1980, one for ego homosexuality. Seven years later, this was in turn renamed sexual disorder not otherwise specified. The most recent DSM, published 2013, contains the diagnostic label gender diaspora for people who are upset about their sexual or gender orientation. In other words, homosexuality had been reclassified, um, not eradicated altogether. As psychiatrists such as Richard Green have pointed out, if being unhappy while gay warranted a diagnostic category, so too should egodystonic heterosexuality. Homosexuals continued to be pathologized under the gender identity disorders and, as we all know, gay reparative or conversion therapies, especially for minors, um, are still carried out in many countries. Just to conclude, in this talk I focused on three widely debated and very different so-called perversions within 19th and 20th century psychiatry, exhibitionism, sexual sadism, homosexuality. The categorization of these sex acts and identities as perversions were important in drawing disciplinary lines between moral, legal, and medical authorities. The label perversion bundled together loving relationships, gay and BDSM ones, for example, with acts of extraordinary cruelty. The longevity of these medical characterizations, along with their dissemination throughout society, exposes the power of stigmatization and othering. But it also shows the ability of political actors in solidarity to forge more equitable and fulfilling worlds. There was no truth of sex. Um, or perversions to be identified. They were always sustained by webs of knowledge and networks of power. As Pierre Bourdieu put it, every established order tends to produce the naturalization of its own arbitrariness. This is as true of psychiatry as in any field of knowledge and draws attention to the need to pay attention to history as well as to the political, ideological and moral authority of psychiatrists and the people they seek to label. And that's it for today. Just to um, say please join me. Next one is 6th of January, pornography. Thank you very much and I believe we have time for some questions. Yes.
Um, historically, has nudism been associated with exhibitionism? And if so, when did they become separate? Really, really good question. Yep. Nudism, one... Um, okay. Firstly, we have to make a distinction whether we're talking about male or female nudism because there are huge distinctions there. Um, male nudism has been considered as one of the symptoms of being an exhibitionist. Um, female um, nudism, inter interestingly, is considered to be much more natural to what it means to be a woman. Women are naturally exhibitionists. Women naturally love to um, show off their bodies. A very convenient myth, I think, for, 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 for men. Um, so has been less pathologized as part of that. And of course, the story I told about the uses of law laws against um, um, people who expose their genitals, coming from laws about vagrancy, about public public disorder, public offences. I mean, they were used, of course, to punish um, um, nudists, the nud nudist communities, which is one of the reasons why, particularly in some work I've done in the 1920s through to, to the 50s, um, you know, these nudist communities went to extremes to be seen as respectable, so much so that they're probably more respectable than, than you know, non-nudists, um, precisely because of that stigmatization. Okay, um, and one more. Uh, since sadism and exhibitionism were also viewed as mental, mental conditions, in which ways were they treated, if at all? Were the methods similar to the treatment of homosexuality? In general, they are treated in um, very, very similar ways. In other words, whatever the main forms of treatment are at the time for sexual deviation were used to treat homosexuals, we use to treat sexual sadists, we use to treat exhibitionists. So the, the answer to the question is, it depends what period we're talking about. But in that any particular period of time, they are being treated in the same or very similar ways. I think sexual sadism is a slightly different case because of the distinction between the consensual S&M and, of course, rape murderers, um, which, you know, you could just, you know, you just have to keep separate there. Um, um, uh, but certainly consensual S&M is treated similarly to exhibitionists and, um, and, and homosexuality. Um, sexual sadists who are rape murderers, of course, um, they are mainly imprisoned. Um, yeah. Good evening. Uh, thank you very much. Um, famously uh, hard to disentangle the, the, the elements of play, uh, the morality, the law, religion, medical science, uh, the, the, way, the way they connect interconnect in, in, in these particular, this particular field is, is hard to get to, to grips with. And I, I wonder if, uh, um, if, if you had a view whether um, looking at uh, a primitive, uh, so-called primitive or pre-monotheistic uh, societies was revealing to you about how attitudes to, to some of these, you know, so-called so paraphilias or perversions, uh, you know, were, were viewed before medical science came along, before Christianity came along, mm -hmm. and, and you might argue perverted <laughs> themselves mm -hmm. our feelings about, um, say, sadism or exhibitionism or homosexuality. Yeah, I think... Um I think that's a really important question and it's difficult to answer because it leads into problems of what do you do in exploring previous societies that don't have a name for what we are exploring. 
Okay? So, you know, if you're looking at these very, very early um, pre-modern societies, um, you know, if they don't have a name for what particular acts, like, for example, exhibitionism, okay, let's just take that as, as, as one, then what are we doing when we look for, we look for that in the, that, that period? So we really can only... Um, use their own languages and the concepts that they use. And if they don't actually have that concept, then there's nothing... I, I mean, one is at loss of what to do. So, for example, um, in there's some really interesting work that I heard sp spoke, being spoken about, um, which was looking at Japan in, I think it was, 13th, 14th century. Um, and the person was interested in questions of you know, exhibitionism. Okay? But when she was reading accounts of men whose genitals were on public display, there was no sort of public, there was no outrage about it. Um, so there was nothing really she could say about it because that the society didn't have a sense of outrage or a sense of um, anything about that. It was just a man who was dressed inappropriately. Um, uh, and that's all she could say about it. So I think that's the problem that we face when trying to do, trying to post-date, predate a lot of the work that, that I do. Um, so, you know, so what I can, what I do is I say, well, when does it become an ism? When does exposing genitals become exhibitionism? And then I can explore, well, what was it before that? And before that, it was a crime, it was loitering, it was vagabonds, and that. That gives me an in. But um, this research that this other person did, she had no in for that. I don't know if that. Well, it does. I'm just imagining a, a, a world, a society, a time yeah. in which a, a group of people. Yeah. Uh, might have viewed homosexuality or, or rape uh, or sadism or exhibitionism as non-problem. They just might have, it, they, yeah. it might not have occurred um, to them as it occurs to us. Oh, yes, I mean, sorry, there's a vast literature in terms of homosexuality in terms of that. Um, you know, there's, there's entire civilizations where it's not, a, not an issue, it's normal behavior, it's, um, yeah, absolutely vast literature of that. Um, not in terms of the other two, that, at least that I'm aware of, not in terms of exhibitionism and, and sexual sadism. Um, yeah. That's it for me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but homosexuality oh, is a really good, good example of precisely that. You know, okay, totally well, normal. I'm afraid we have to draw it to a close there. Um, thank you so much again, Professor Burke, for a fantastic lecture and for your generosity in answering all the questions. And thank you all for attending, both in person and online. Let's thank Professor Burke one more time. <laughs> <laughs>